Welcome to the Tell Us Something podcast. I'm Mark Moss. The podcast is going on hiatus for the summer. We've resumed the YouTube uploads, and you can get your storytelling fix at youtube.com slash something. Expect a new video each week. The podcast will return in October after the next live event. Remember, we're taking pitches for the October show right now. To pitch your story, call 406-203-4683. The theme is It's Complicated. This week's podcast is a little Father's Day special I produced for Montana Public Radio. I'll let you listen to it just as it aired back in June. Thanks for listening. Welcome to a very special Father's Day edition of Tell Us Something Radio. During the next hour, you'll hear stories that include a young Jewish boy struggling to please his father, a second-generation immigrant who takes his family to a lake in Michigan as a result of a family story, an important discovery in the basement of the New York Public Library, and a theater director whose car breaks down on a mountain pass during a time of great chaos. I'm Mark Moss, creator of Tell Us Something, a series of live storytelling events that began in 2011. People come to see these events and practice the radical act of active listening. Storytellers are regular everyday people who share their true personal stories from memory in front of a live audience. The people who share their stories at Tell Us Something events are engaging in one of humankind's oldest traditions, storytelling. It's what makes us human. While we've been based in Missoula and hold four events yearly here, we've expanded to having two live events in Helena and are working on a live storytelling event in Butte, America. All of the stories you'll hear in tonight's Father's Day special were recorded in front of a live audience at various Tell Us Something live events. We'll begin with Stephen Begletter. After a rousing bout playing street football, Stephen learns that his father is called back to Germany to testify against a concentration camp guard. Over the course of the next several years, Stephen learns what life was like for his father in the concentration camp, while at the same time trying to please his father by becoming a football player. Stephen calls his story, My Father and Football. I'm lying flat on my back, feeling the sweat pour down my forehead into my ears and looking at the sky, and then also tasting blood in my mouth. And I'm thinking, how did I get here? All right, how did I get here? When I was 10, my parents would shuttle me off to temple every Sunday, and I would come home. This one particular Sunday was a little bit different when I came home, because when I came home, the media trucks were in front of my house. And I wondered, what's this about? So I barged through the media, you know, said, Mom, what's up? She said, well, your dad has to go to Germany. So I go, okay. So I get on my street clothes, and then I go off to our playground and get ready for street football. Now, I kind of grew up in a very tough neighborhood in Cleveland. Street football was brutal. Basically, you didn't wear any helmets, any pads, or anything. What you did is you got on the field, and like Greek civilization, you would talk about your week, how everything went, how's your family, and then you'd go out in the field and try to kill each other. (laughs) And that's how we played football every Sunday. So that Sunday, I told my best friend, Nikki Marino, what had happened. I said, the news is in front of my house, and my dad's going to Germany, I know what's going on. He looks at me and goes, well, that's cool. I go, okay. So Nikki, being my best friend since diapers, was a pretty cool guy until he was six and he was hit by a car and had a metal plate put in his head, which made for interesting party tricks because we'd always put magnets on his head. <laughs> and people always wondered, you know, what Nikki would do. But Nikki also had some anger issues. And so, what better place to put them out is on a football field, right? So I always wanted Nikki on my team, because he's the kind of guy that if he had the ball, he would give you the ball so he could tackle you and push you down. (laughs) He was a good man. So we'd basically play this Sunday football. And then I came back home, and uh, you know the media was gone. And I said, Mom, what's this about? And she said, well, your father has to go back to Germany because he has to testify against a concentration camp guard. 
This is the first I ever heard that my father was in a concentration camp. So as you can imagine, as a 10-year-old, it's like, okay, what's this about? The following summer, um, he takes off to Germany, and I'm back on the field playing football. This time, I sort of am older, you know, I'm basically becoming more of a man, 11-year-old, and I'm figuring out what's going on in my life. And so football season kind of ends, and my father comes back from Germany. The media comes back to our house again. And this time, in the newspaper on the front cover, I see my mom, my dad, on the front cover of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was kind of cool. But then I started wondering why are there. So I actually read the story, and I realized that the reason why my father went back is he had been in a concentration camp uh, for four years of his life. He basically was going back to Germany to testify against the guard that led the concentration camp. So, you know, I'm going back to the football field, and now I'm even more confused than I was before. But then my friend Nikki comes up to me and goes, in seventh grade, we should join the football team. I go, okay. He goes, you get to wear helmets and pads and all that stuff, and girls really like it. So I go, okay, that's a no-brainer. So, you know, seventh grade happens around, and like street football, school football, you show up, you're on the team, right? If you can survive coaches, which I'd never even worked under before, you can survive anything. And we had two coaches that were particularly sadistic. McFarland was one of them, who loved to spit chewing tobacco in your face, just for the fun of it. And then Schroeder, who said something, hustle, hustle, St. Jane Russell, get a busting mouth which I had no idea what that meant, but I later found out who Jane Russell was, and then it, oh, triggered off. So another thing I started doing in eighth grade is I wanted to get to know my dad more. So the only way I could do that was to work with him, because he was a bit of a workaholic. And so every Saturday, I would go to work with him at the Premier Sales Army-Navy store in Cleveland, Ohio. I finally got the nerve to ask him, I said, okay, What's going on? I mean, what was it like in the concentration camp? And who is this guy? And, you know, he said, well, here the story was, this guy would sit in a chair, and they'd wake us up at night, and he said, you go to the right, you go to the left. And basically, you know, the people on the left went to the gas chamber. And so this is how my father survived. I don't know how he survived, to be honest with you. So I'm on the football field again, right? I am, by nature, a pretty passive person. Those who know me kind of say, yeah. So I'm on the football field, but I'm trying to prove myself. What I start imagining is all the people who are playing against me are Nazis, right? So suddenly I'm 13, 14, right? Pubic hair and all that stuff. And I'm looking at all these Nazis out on the field, and I go, yeah, I can tackle them. I can bring them down. I can be a hero. Just didn't happen. It wasn't part of me wasn't my personality. In fact, my best friend, Jim Fisher, came up to me and said, you know, you'd be really good if you're aggressive. And this is an aggressive game. But you know, it was still my place, and I stayed on the team. I primarily sat on the bench, which was okay. I got to watch the games and run around and stuff like that, and that was my junior high year. For some reason, I decided to continue this crazy notion of being a football player. So I tried out for the JV team. And like junior high, the JV team was, you show up, you're on the team. So I go, great, I'm on the team. So actually, I kind of got promoted to being on special teams. And if you don't know what special teams are, it basically is that you, know, you kick the ball, and then you run down as fast as you can down the field, and you try to tackle the guy with the ball. And I was really awful. I would actually dodge people who were running at me and it's like okay it's not my sport but I played I got to sit you know on the bench and you know and throughout this whole thing actually my dad never came to any of these games and I'm thinking okay I'm playing football because I want to prove something to my dad right but he never really showed up which is okay my mom did she wore the pants in the family right and so I decided to join the varsity team. Okay, is this self-abuse or what? Self-infliction? Just kill me, right? So I joined the varsity team, and once again, you show up. It's a little bit different when you're in varsity football in high school. You actually have to prove yourself. So 
one of the ways you prove yourself is you begin the summer with what they call two-day practices, two-a-day practices, two practices in one day that begin at 8.30 in the morning, and you put all this gear on, which is like 40 pounds of gear in your helmet, and this is Cleveland, Ohio in August. It's 98 degrees with 80% humidity. It's awful, but we did it. So you put all this gear on, and they'd actually give us salt tablets. Kind of felt like a horse, right? So we went faint, and many people did faint throughout these practices. So the first week we go through these practices, and we're doing all these drills, and you know, you start off your practice by running four times around the track in all your gear, and then you go push heavy things, which you know, try to push them as far as you can, and then you go beat up on all your friends. It's football. So I did this for one week, all right? I actually lasted for that one week, and so I decided, okay, I'm gonna go back. So I'll go back on Monday morning, the second week of football, and I am ready, okay? I'm gonna make this team, I'm gonna do whatever it takes. Everyone is a Nazi out there, and I'm gonna get them, but it's not really me. So Monday morning, the coaches, who were no better than the coaches in junior high, decided that they were going to assign us the positions because they had a pretty good idea of who we were and stuff. And I was kind of a big guy. You know, I weighed about 175, uh, six feet. You know, I was in high school back then. You know, so they decide for some reason that I would make a good offensive tackle. (laughs) Now, tackles are big, right? One of the drills you have to do to prove yourself to make this football team is they put you against someone who's sort of your size, and you do this exercise. And this is kind of crazy. You basically like two mountain goats. You know, you kind of sit in front of each other and look at each other, and then with all your strength and energy, you run into their heads. It's like sumo wrestlers in reality. So the guy they put me against was about 120 pounds heavier than me and he was about 10 inches taller than me. He was big, he was massive, he was a wall. But, you know, this is my chance to prove myself, okay? So I basically, we get into position, I get into that three-point stance, and I'm wearing my helmet, and I'm looking at this guy, he's looking at me, we're giving each other the eye, and we're kind of, you know, doing the machismo thing. And suddenly the whistle blows, and I'm thinking in my head, okay, this is it, you know, I'm gonna like annihilate Hitler, I'm gonna get rid of all the other stuff, like this is going through my head, this is my motivation, this is gonna do it. And I run into this wall and I fall about three feet back onto my back, okay? And this is the moment where I'm going, okay, whoops, I gotta make a change here. Somehow that knock to the head kind of cleared my head. And it was at that moment, I'm lying on my back with the sweat, blood in my mouth, and I'm looking up and I'm thinking, I don't want to play this game anymore. It's not me. (laughs) I can't do this thing. So, you know, the coach is like, I see him's kind of blurry, helps me up, and he goes, okay, why don't you take a shower, I'll come back in the afternoon. So I go, great. I uh, actually call my mom. I said, can we have lunch? (laughs) And she says, sure. And so, um, you know, she, we have lunch and I'm like really nervous because I don't know what to say because I've never really quit anything. I'm really stubborn. And so I, I looked at her and really sheepishly, I go, you know, I don't want to play football anymore. And she looks at me and goes, that's great. <laughs> so it's like, wow, why am I doing this to myself, okay? That's about it. A little addendum. I called my mom because I wanted to kind of verify the story. And she goes, yeah, I remember. We went to Damon's. You had this. And your face was black and blue. And you had blood coming out of your mouth. (laughs) So she goes, yeah, I was really happy you stopped playing football. (laughs) Stephen H. Begleiter began his photography career in New York City, starting as first assistant to Annie Leibovitz and the late Mary Ellen Mark. His first book of photographs, Fathers and Sons, was well-received and sold over 25,000 copies in the first year. Since then, he has lived and worked professionally in New York, Pennsylvania, and Montana. He currently resides in Denver, Colorado with his family, where he is an adjunct professor at the Colorado Institute of Art. To learn more about Stephen and his work, visit tellussomething.org. Our next story comes to us from Alex Alvier. A child in 1943 hides in the lilies of a lake in the Philippine village of Tarlac as the Japanese occupy his village. 
he goes on to move to Detroit and become a doctor. This story fills Alex with awe and inspires him to take his child to a lake in Michigan years later, infusing him with the wisdom he's learned. Listen to Alex's story unfold, which we call Invisible Scripts. I'm going to start my story with a child at a lake in lily pads. I'm going to end my story with a child at a lake in the lily pads. And in between there, there's a church and there's a grain elevator. So you can follow along that way. So the first child, it's 1943. The Japanese have occupied the Philippines. In the village of Tadlak, it's rumored that they're taking children and throwing them up in the air and catching them on bayonets. One child escapes. And the story goes, they hid in the lilies of the lake so he wouldn't be found. That child grows up. He ends up walking through the villages. The old women recognize that he's smart, and so they start to shove money into his pockets for school. He keeps going. He raises money selling duck eggs and eggplant to put himself through medical school. That man eventually makes it on to America, to the suburbs of Detroit, and becomes my father. And from what he told us as kids, because they had to hide with him in the reeds and the lily pads, that's why he was named Moses. And so I just called him this morning. I was like, hey, Dad, is that true? He's like, oh, I'm so, no, I made that up. <laughs> but the rest is true. The duck eggs, the eggplant, that's all true, okay? But stories are important because stories, even as we heard them as kids, you have no idea the weight of that story because it infects the entire lineage of our family and even the way that my father is perceived, even though he's not the oldest sibling, his older siblings tremble in fear when he's angry because he's known in the family not just for being the person who worked really hard and made it to America, but he's also known as just the kind of moral upright backbone. And so he'll spank other people's kids and he won't care. That's, it's kind of like that. People get afraid of him that way. And so this is my lineage. And there's a lot that comes with that in terms of an expectation of excellence. So my sister, she was not valedictorian, but salutatorian. And in our house, like if you get a 97%, instead of like, hey, good job, it's like, where's the other 3%? So, you know, it was kind of there. You know, my brother, he's a very accomplished person as well, has all of you that have cell phones, some of those patents are from him. And then there's me. I was, uh, the kid that, well, I didn't really do so well in terms of grades. I got B's and C's, and you know, that's, that counts as an Asian F, really, when it comes down to it, in my family. And so, there, that's one thing you need to know about right away, about legacy. And now for me, I didn't really fit in with that legacy. And so, where we ended up going to school, was part of the American dream, part of the Filipino dream, is you send, you make your way to America and you can send your kids to Catholic school. That means you have arrived. So, you know, here we are, we've arrived at Catholic school and have really distorted stories of who Moses is and I'm thinking my dad is Moses, for like the one in the Bible, and it's like, no, it's not true. Um, and so, but one moment happened that was very defining for me at that Catholic school and that Catholic church. So it's an all-white school, 
in an all-white suburb of Detroit. And although there were no Jim Crow laws, we were the only immigrant family. And so by definition, we'd show up on Sundays and we always, always sat in the back row. It was just this automatic response, just what my parents did. And so we did the same. And one day, an usher came up to us and he asked my dad, he said, would your family like to bring the gifts up? If, I don't know how familiar you are with Catholic Church, but it's a big deal to bring up the wine and the bread during the ceremony of communion. And my dad said, yes. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, dad? And, and I absolutely freaked out. I was crying, I was kicking and screaming, like, I am not going down that aisle, no way. And you know, I've never explained this to my family. To this day, they still were like, yeah, you remember that time in second grade where you, why were you crying? Like, I just never had a good answer for them. And the truth is, I could go to school and no one sees me and my family. They just see me. But here, in that setting in that church, they see my whole family. And they see me as a part of that family. And it was the most terrifying thing for me to have all these white faces looking at us. And so it goes on from there, because now I got to get into my dating life for you guys. Um, <laughs> it's one of those odd things at that moment, though, where, oh, they asked us to come as kind of a, an offering, a token, to help, help us feel included. And I, I, I respect that, and I understand that. But it also just was incredibly unnerving for me. And what I realized from that is that there's a lot of what I call invisible scripts. It's an invisible script why we would sit in the back. It was an invisible script why they thought it'd be a good idea to uh, have have the one brown family bring it up. Wouldn't that be cool, right? And so those scripts carried and followed. By the time I was a freshman in high school, this girl named Shizuka called me up. I haven't seen Shizuka since kindergarten. But because she's Chinese, and she's Asian, and I'm Asian, I guess, therefore, we, we need to date each other or something. And so we're literally sitting across from each other from dinner. I'm like, so, have you been for the last decade? You know? And so, again, there's this other kind of invisible scripts. Now, one of the things that happens with that is I go on to college. And in college, then, instead of hanging out and feeling awkward with all white people, I'm like, I'm gonna reclaim my roots. This is the 90s, everyone's like, back to the roots. You know, multiculturalism, all these sorts of things. So I hung out with all Asian students, okay? And had a lot of friends that way and that sort of thing. It was all nice and multicultural and diverse and wonderful. But one of the odd things happened was I actually happened to drive across country to Boulder on my way to interview somebody for a project. And I brought two of my white hippie friends with me. And it was the coolest moment for me. I'd never left Detroit. And we were at a grain silo in this small greasy spoon out in the middle of nowhere restaurant where literally there was a hand-painted sign that said, come eats. And I went in and it was like, to me it was like the most amazing, charming thing in the world. And we went in, we ate, and I was like, wow, this is cool. This is authentic American thing, right? <laughs> And we left, and what I said to them both was like, hey, thank you guys. You know, because I wouldn't have been able to do that without you guys with me. I don't think I would have ever gone in there on my own. My friend Bill was like, cool. My friend Amy was just like, well, what do you mean? It's 1998. What are you worrying about? And it was suddenly that real big, I'm like, well, so we had this long discussion about in the car about, yeah, I do feel uncomfortable at times going into different places where there does seem to be an invisible script. But one of the things that happened after that grain silo 
was I went back to my Asian girlfriend back in college, and I suddenly realized, we're together, and are we together because we choose each other? Or are we together because there's a written script for us that we have to follow? And what I wanted, I wanted the grain silo. I wanted those mountains. I wanted that small town. And I knew, because we tried it, she was afraid. She couldn't come with me to there. She couldn't go there without feeling really suspicious and feeling small and wanting to sit in the back row, just like my family, in the back row of that church. And so, one of the things that happened for me then, eventually, was that slowly over time, for whatever strange reason, I ended up living in a Quaker community on a lake <laughs> as a winter caretaker to write the manuscript that eventually got me accepted in the University of Montana. And I was working at a job, and it was proper, it was corporate, I was using my English degree, I got to be publishing. My family was so excited, because like, hey, wow, he looks like an adult now. You know, he's growing up. And I decided, as I rode out onto that lake one morning, it was the most beautiful Michigan fall I could ever imagine. It was literally the colors of the trees inverted on the black water of the lake, and I kayak out all by myself. And then I knew I had to get in my car and drive and go to that job. And for me, I had this moment of like, okay, what is the script here? Alex does the grown-up thing in the job. He will probably f work nine to five and marry an Asian girl and have Asian kids and my family will be happy. Or, I'm 24. I will never, ever, have a life on this lake like this ever again. What do I want to tell my kids who are one day in the future? What's the script? What's the story I want? And so I told my brother, I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about quitting. And he goes on the phone, sorry, dude, but um, Snoop Doggy Dog needs to get a jobby job and grow up. And <laughs> So again, there's that script. I'm like, damn it. But I did change my mind, and I quietly quit. I didn't tell anybody. And years later, at that same lake, the same place I eventually brought my parents out to to see, I brought my family. And I'm standing there with my son, who has hazel eyes, green eyes sometimes, and the lily pads, kayaking through. And I want to be able to tell him, listen, if you ever want to go against those scripts, do it, just like your dad. Alex Alvio was born to Filipino immigrant parents just outside Detroit. He left Michigan to pursue an MFA in creative writing and poetry at the University of Montana. Alex was a poet in residence at the Missoula Writing Collaborative in 2004 and has served various schools on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Missoula. Welcome back to Tell Us Something Radio. I'm Mark Moss, creator of Tell Us Something, a series of live storytelling events in which people share their true personal stories in front of a live audience. If you're just joining us, we are celebrating Father's Day with stories about fathers and sons. Up next, we'll hear a story from Ed Stalling, who, along with his brother Bob, discover the magic of the microfiche room in the basement of the New York Public Library. Ed calls his story a gift for dad. So New York City, it's a, New York City is an amazing, amazing place for an adventure. It's a magical, magical place 
but you got to know the exact right place to go in New York City to have that magical time. My brother Bob and I, about 20 years ago, found that magical place in the New York Public Library. Not just in the New York Public Library, but down in the basement of the New York Public Library, way down in the northeast corner, there's a windowless, musty old room called the Microfish Room. Where Now, if you're under 30, you can look up Microfish, probably. You can Google it or something. <laughs> but it's these old machines. You sit down in there, and we would walk up the stairs, the marble stairs to the New York Public Library every morning, wait for the doors to open. We'd rush down into that microfish room so we could get one of the machines or two of the machines. We'd spend all day in there. We'd be the last people to leave that room. We'd leave to take the train back to Connecticut where he was living at the time. And we just kept doing that day after day. That one day, it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, from the other side of the microfish room, he yelled, I got it. Bingo. Holy shit. I found it. After days and days of work. So what he had found was we had been looking through the U.S. Census reports for 1880, 1890, 1900, and I ran over to his machine and looked, and I said, holy fish, this, you, you have found the impossible. Our adventure had actually started about six or seven months before, and like any good adventure, it started over alcohol. We had been having a couple beers, I was the genealogist in the family, and, I, and we were talking about my grandmother, my father's mother, who died when he was only two years old. His father quickly remarried, and she was an alcoholic. And in a drunken fit of rage one night, she, or he, or she had burned every single picture that existed of his original mother. And for some reason, which I still don't understand, his father never talked about the original mother. He was a, a merchant marine that was never home and um, married four or five other times. So he knew nothing about his mother other than that her name was Emma Schmidt and that there was some kind of connection to Cuba. As the genealogist, I had dug around and had found some some things, but, you know, basic vital statistics, boring facts, you know, when she died. Um, and on her death certificate, it said she was born in Havana, Cuba, which I thought was interesting. But very little information. My brother, being a tenacious Northeasterner who knows nothing about genealogical research, over a couple of pints of beer, he said, look, you know that somewhere, somewhere in, in this country, sitting in an attic, and an old cardboard box is a photo album with pictures of her. What's the chance of that? And I said, you know, there, there probably is. He said, what's the chance we could ever find that? And I said, absolutely impossible. Now, this was the days before internet. It was just coming on, so you couldn't just push a button and find things. You had to do a lot of work. And I said, it would take years of work and probably $10,000 of research and just all kinds of stuff. He got another pint, and he kept pushing me. He said, let's give it a shot. I said, absolutely no way, you're insane. Bought another pint of beer. And finally, after four pints of beer, I said, all right, I'll commit to a year. We'll work together for a year, and we'll go after this thing. And the next morning, I said, what the hell have I done? Because I knew what it would take. A lot of trips to New York, you know, just lots of library work, just going through all of this stuff. So our plan was, his mom, I found her in the U.S. Census, and she had a couple brothers and a couple sisters. So I said, hey, let, if we can find, you know, this was her, his mom, she had our dad, and, and here's us. For the brothers and sisters, if we can find their grandkids, like us, they might have a photo album. That's our best chance. Let's work off of the siblings. The brothers, we worked on for about a month. Forget about it. It was horrible. The, the last name was Schmidt. Have you ever looked in? You probably haven't. But if you ever do look in the 1900 U.S. Census for Manhattan for the name Schmidt, right? You're done. So on to the sisters. Now here's something about genealogical research. Sisters suck. The reason sisters suck for genealogists is you might find them at 16 years of age. 
Then they get married, and 10 years later, when the next US Census is done, they're gone forever until you find out who they married. And that's very tough to find. At least it was before the internet. So, sister one, what he had found that day in the microfish room of the New York Public Library, when he said, holy shit, was the impossible. He had found sister number one living in the same household, but with her new husband. So we knew who she married, right? So now we have a fresh lead to go on. Not only that, but it was a very odd name. So only 40 people in the country had that last name. So we started calling them. All 40, we started calling them. Now, it was tough because you say, hear me out. You don't know me, but I'm talking about, do you know these people from 100 years ago in Manhattan, right? They're living here. This was their names. Click. You'd call them back and say, no, seriously, hear me out, because you've got the same last name as these. Click. Two people actually said, I'm black. Are you black? I said, no, I'm not black. They said, click. You know, it's not. <laughs> so... The last number I called was in Hawaii, and the reason is because back then Hawaii was expensive, we didn't have any money. Called Hawaii, gave him the spiel, no click. It's silent. And he goes, you're talking about my grandparents, my grandmother. And I said, oh my God, found the family, just like we thought. I spent the next two months with the people in this person's family, we've become close, that knew their family history, but a complete dead end. They knew nothing about my father's mom. They never knew she had a sister, that their grandmother had a sister named Emma. Done, dead end. So we're basically done, but there was one thing they did know. They knew who the second sister had married, which totally opened up that lead. Her name was Consuelo, Consuelo Schmidt, and they said, we know that she, <laughs> true story, true story, I got picked, so we, she said that she married a guy named Rhodes. I spent another month looking for Consuela Rhodes and found her in Virginia. She had just passed away three years ago at 90 years old in a nursing home. I found the nurse, I found the death records. So it ends up she had lived for all the time I was growing up in Connecticut. She had lived 30 miles away from my dad, his mom's own sister that could have told all kinds of tales. I found her, she had passed away, but I found out she had a son. And I found out the son was very high up in the Pentagon. So I had the balls to call the Pentagon, <laughs> which I was really scared about, and talking to this guy that's high up and said, now, listen, I started telling him this tale. He goes, it's very disturbing that you know so much about my family and that you know my mom and that she's from Cuba. He said, I'll tell you what, I have absolutely no interest in any of this. I just never have. But I have every box that my mom owned in the attic. And I will guarantee to you that I'll, over the next winter, every now and then if I have time, I'll look through these photos. Through the box. He didn't even know it was in the boxes. I said, great, thanks. We kept in touch a little bit. About a month later, he called me and he goes, isn't your last name Stalling? I said, it is. He goes, I got a photo on the back, and on the back it says stalling. He, d he found two or three more. He did not want to even send those to us, but he said, I'll tell you what, come to fly to Washington, D.C., sit with, you can stay in my house, we'll go through all these boxes together. So I flew my father, who's now like 75 years old, my brother and I, we all flew in. He opened up his home, his wife and him, to us. We went through all these boxes, but by the time we got there, it was like midnight right, with my father. He picked us up at the airport. We get into this guy's house, and his wife is showing us where we can sleep. And I said, no, the picture. Where's the picture? He goes, well, that can wait till morning. He really said, that can wait till morning. And I'm thinking, what if my father dies, right? <laughs> Tonight, in the same house as the picture of his mother. He pulls out the picture, shows it to my dad. My dad looks at the picture and goes, oh my God, I've never seen a picture of my father so young. And that woman, it looked like a wedding picture that he's, his arm is around. He goes, she looks exactly like my brother. And he, his finger touched her face, and he goes, that's my mom. And my brother and I looked at each other, and we said, you know what? We did it. My father died about three years later, and at his funeral, 
at the end of the funeral, my brother came over. We had a private little toast with our beer, and we said, you know what? We gave a hell of a gift to Dad. Thank you. Ed Stalling is no stranger to adventure. He spent years working in the woods of Alaska alongside brown bears. He loves playing drums with the Soul City Brass Band, drives the Ed Norton Big Band, and plays with the Captain Wilson Conspiracy and the John Floridas Trio. He lives in Missoula with his wife and best friend, Lori. Our final story comes to us from David Mills Lowe. David is blessed with a moment of stillness when the car he is driving breaks down on Bozeman Pass. He has the chance to remember his recently deceased father during a very stressful time. David calls his story Fixing Windmills or Saying Goodbye to Dad. June 22nd, 2005, the sun came up in a clear blue sky. It was a gorgeous day. But because it was Bozeman, the air was crisp. The uh, windshield of my car was covered in condensation as I drove across town to rehearsal. Now, at that point in time, I was uh, touring with the Vigilante Theater Company. We were touring the northwestern United States. And the following week, we were opening a show with a brand new actress. So we were in the, in the, the heat of rehearsal As I pulled up to my uh, artistic director's house, he was at the curb, and he said, you need to go home. So I I turned around and and started driving back to the house. Uh, I have an overactive imagination, so I started playing through all of the millions of things that could be going on. I, it could be my kids, my, my wife at the time, my, uh, my folks, any number of things. The government could have collapsed while I was driving to, to rehearsal. So I, I don't know what's going on. I, I walk into the house and my wife says, your dad died. Now, there are, there are deaths that you expect that you see coming for a long time. And there are those that are sudden. And this was one of those, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm standing there like I got kicked in the chest going, uh, okay, trying to figure out how, what's, what's going to go on with the day, how, how, how I'm going I'm to have to skip rehearsals. My mom is in town for a convention, uh, and so, uh, you know, I've got, I've got to talk to her and take care of her and see what's going on, and, and, and so, and so I'm, I'm trying to figure out my day, and I stop, and I say, what, what happened? And, and she says, well... He fell off a windmill. And that's the point in the movie where, where the record screeches to a halt and all the cowboys turn from the bar and go, what? Because who the oh, f- dies falling off a windmill? Well, like Keanu Reeves said in his first Coke commercial, my dad. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I try and get myself together, but the days begin to uh, to move into a blur. We we go. We're we're with my mom. We're f- at the at the motel. We're fielding phone calls and and calling family and friends and and trying to get everybody together. And and I'm I'm trying to figure out tours coming up. And, I, and I've got to do that because if I don't do that, that puts six people out of work. And and so uh, we're we're figuring out funerals. The people call and say, hi, um, we're just calling to say that we're going to collect John's corneas. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that. And please tell your spouses um, your decision to donate your organs, because it's a hell of a thing to find out just after you die. My mom goes back to Malta up on the High Line. I, uh, I borrow a car to drive my wife and kids up to the funeral. We get, we get into town just in time for, for the, uh, the memorial service, five minutes to go. And, and my aunt says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll watch your kids for you while you go in. And I'm thinking, great, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm a little scattered right now. We're going to, but thank you. And, and she's like, okay, just through that door over there. And so we, we walk through the door and... And I realized that, that she's not offering to babysit the kids while, while the memorial service goes on. She's uh, offering to watch the kids while we go in to view the body. Now, for me, viewing a body is not something that I need in my life. That, that once someone is gone, they're gone. That spark that was that person that was my dad from the time that I was four years old. The, the, the man that raised me as, as his own, also the man that, that kicked me out of the house the day after I, I finally stood up to him. 
that man was not there anymore. And, and so I was standing there in this room and, and, and looking at the, this thing in a box. It's, uh, it's quite, quite a thing. His, his, his eyes were all sunken in from where they had, they had harvested his corneas and, and, and his body was racked with rigor mortis and they, they performed an autopsy because this accident had happened on the farm and so they had to do all of this stuff. And so this, this piece of meat and, and bone is, is lying there and, and I'm like, that's, that's not my dad. And, and, and I... Uh, I started to laugh. And that's, that's one of the things that, that we have going for us as human beings is, is this, this ability to release our tension and our nervous energy and all of this stuff through laughter. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a survival instinct. And so I started to laugh. And it was, it was a hell of a week. The, uh, the service was all about, about laughter and, and tears and remembering this man that, that was was an inspiration to a lot of us, was a dad to a lot of us. I will jump forward. We went to, I made it to the, uh, the service where a gymnasium was full of 500 people there to say goodbye. And then, and then we went to the, to the graveside and, and they had this other service and we're surrounded by all of these people and I'm, I'm standing there kind of scanning the crowd, just seeing who I know. And there's, there's a group, there's 50 people from the Hutterite colony there and, and you don't see that every day. And, and, and then I get in the car and I start driving back to Bozeman because I, I have to get there because the next morning I have to get in the van to, to go on tour and the van, the, the, the car I'm driving breaks down on, on Bozeman Pass at two o'clock in the morning and I'm so tired and I'm so cold that I just, that I just stay in there and, and think about what's going on because there are sometimes in our lives so few moments that, that we can stop and think and sometimes we're blessed with, with the occasion where we can, where we can take in the full breadth of an experience and process it and, and move on with our lives. And sometimes we don't have that. We have to, we have to process on the go. And I was thinking about, about that night where, where he pushed me and I pushed back for the first time and what that did in his eyes and, and how everything changed in that moment. But but time had passed and time changes things. And so that man became someone else as I too changed. And so then I sat and thought about how one week before I'd been on the telephone with, with my dad and he was telling me about how excited he was. There was this church down in Nebraska that wanted to, him to come and preach. And he's like, I, you know, I think I'm ready to do it again. I think I'm ready to, to, to go do it. And he, he's so excited. And he's telling me about all these books that he's reading and, and, and things that he's studying. And, and then he's, he's talking about, about things we love and how lucky I am to be doing that thing that I love. And... And you know, there are a lot of things that, that, that he loved in the world. One of them was, was fixing windmills. <laughs> and uh, and it, was, it was one of his favorite places to be. He was, he was doing something that he loved in a time that he loved doing it. And I had the opportunity in this, in this phone call to, to talk to this man, to to reconnect with him and to say, I love you, Dad. And he said he loved me back and we were proud of each other. And so I got to say goodbye before he left. That's how I was lucky.
my Father's house shines hard and bright. It stands like a beacon calling me in the night, calling and calling so cold and Shining across this dark highway where our sins lie unatoned. That's My Father's House by Bruce Springsteen from his 1982 album, Nebraska. David Mills Lowe makes his living doing theater in Montana. He is the Montana playwright-in-residence, director, ensemble member, and artistic director at the Opera House Theater Company in Phillipsburg, Montana. I hope you've enjoyed these stories, and I hope you'll come out to a live event sometime soon. You can learn about our live storytelling events at tellussomething.org and by following Tell Us Something on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Tell Us Something produces a podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us at youtube.com slash tellussomething. Tell Us Something Radio was produced and edited for broadcast by me, Mark Moss. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation. Many thanks to Logjam Presents for hosting Tell Us Something events at the Wilma in Missoula. Thanks also to the following sponsors, Gecko Designs, CabinetParts.com, and The Bookstore at the University of Montana. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for Tell Us Something Radio. Learn about all of our sponsors and more at tellusomething.org. Thanks also to everyone who attends the live events, downloads the podcasts, watches the stories on YouTube, and shares their stories. Until next time, I'm Mark Moss, reminding you that your story matters. This is your community, and these are your stories. To learn about live storytelling events in your town and listen to all of the stories ever shared at Tell Us Something, visit tellussomething.org. To stay up to date on Tell Us Something news, go to tellussomething.org. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you so much for all of your support. Have a fantastic summer.